0: The community solar program was created to allow for the development and operation of renewable energy projects that will generate electricity and RECs that will then be dedicated to the utility who will retire it on the behalf of the state to meet their RPS goals.
1: Community solar. The model where neighbors, community members can collectively purchase clean electricity from a central off-site solar array. Has been gaining massive attention and momentum of late offering an option for equitable access to clean energy while helping to reduce carbon emissions and promising to keep energy prices low for consumers but how exactly is it really different from any other types of solar energy projects and more importantly what does it mean for you as you embrace this clean energy revolution my name is nico johnson your host as we navigate the inner workings of what has been hailed as the fourth vertical in the solar industry. Consider this your Community Solar 101. This five-part series presents unique perspectives from industry experts on how each of us might consider the role of community solar in our business, career, or even neighborhood. Does it really provide equitable access to solar energy? Will it live up to the hype and hope? Or is it too good to be true? In this final episode of our five-part series, we still have one segment of this quilt of knowledge left to weave, the money. How does it work? You heard David Sandbank in episode one refer to the value stack. The ways in which the market participants are incentivized to participate is an important element of any complete understanding of an industry sufficient that you could actually begin to participate in it. So today, I'm sitting down with Sai Kim, an industry veteran who has become a go-to resource for those who wish to develop market entry and business development plans for community solar. I first met Sai back when he was a project developer at SunPower long before he went on to take senior leadership roles in NRG Energy and what would then become Clearway. Sai's market understanding surpasses most others I've met when it comes to explaining the one piece left to unravel in this tapestry. Just how does the revenue in these projects stack up? We discuss RECs, tax equity, market constraints, and more. From types of off-takers to credit risk, incentives, and customer mix, this final discussion will hopefully help fill any remaining gaps in your understanding of just exactly what community solar is and how you can participate in this high-growth opportunity. The Community Solar Series is a production of Suncast Media, and Season 1 is brought to you in partnership with EDP Renewables North America. Today, we are going to dig into the topic of financing, community, solar. It is a critical component to any type of asset class. How do you bring the capital to bear, not just for the one project, but for the portfolio? How do you achieve scale? And the energy transition is nothing if not scale. We need an industrial complex around the infrastructure and assets that we are building. As I alluded in the intro, my friend, Cy, Kim, founder and principal of Community Solar Support, is joining us today to talk about the role of finance and the various aspects that you need to take into consideration when looking at community solar as a part of your portfolio or as a meaningful component to your solar or energy storage business. Sai, welcome to the show.
0: Hey, thank you, Nico. Appreciate it.
1: Good to see you again, man. sai has got a ton of experience. He and I have known each other since your sun power. Days. Sai comes from a corporate finance background. He spent time in Sunpower and NRG, now Clearway, the divestiture of the NRG solar portfolio. And I'd say the bulk or perhaps all of your experience has been in commercial and industrial solar projects. Is that correct? correct? That's correct. Okay. So, Sai, back in 2014, you guys at NRG were starting to take a look at community solar. Did you anticipate that the market was going to really mature? as the quote-unquote fourth vertical for the industry?
0: No, I mean, back in 2014, it was a brand new venture. It was unclear to anybody what it was going to become. We were talking Minnesota, hmm. and that was it. Yeah. And I think all of us intuitively know Minnesota is not necessarily what you would consider to be a potential hotbed for solar, mm-hmm. given its high latitude uh, and pensions for snow.
1: Nevertheless, a huge community solar
0: humongous, yeah, and a pioneer.
1: Yeah, when you look at you know, some of the M&A activity right now, you've got new energy equity acquired by Elite, themselves acquiring IPS. It's a testament to how strong a single market product can be, but that in and of itself does not make a market, doesn't make a, a nationwide program. Yet we mm-hmm. have seen since 2014, the last seven years, the market has matured in a way that now mature credit partners and finance entities are stepping in and taking this sector seriously. When you stepped away from Clearway, you set up community solar support. Help me understand the opportunity in the market that you saw from a corporate finance perspective and the role that you now play to help partners in the marketplace with respect to their community solar portfolios.
0: So when I left Clearway, there were several key active marketplaces. It was predominantly Massachusetts and Minnesota with New York on the rise. What I did note at that time though, all of these programs are policy enabled. So if you're embedded with a legislative and or regulatory team that understands where things are going, you can see the trajectory of the marketplace. And what I saw was a lot of other states that were percolating at the time. And I felt like it was just a matter of when, not if, other states emerged and became new and growing members of the community solar marketplace. So there was a lot of opportunities to continue to grow with community solar. The other thing that was really interesting is that every state, because it's policy enabled, drives unique attributes specific to their programs. And so while a lot of states do take or lift program rules from other states and use that to help push their programs, it's not always the same. And so in terms of opportunities, that meant that if you want to be able to understand and play nationally, you have to follow along with every single state and their unique attributes. And that's not necessarily easy to jump into. So I felt like there was a place for someone like myself who was in the know and was continuing to grow with the marketplace to provide advice, both to the, the offtake side, as well as the folks on the development and capital side.
1: Yeah. Well, you've been developing and evaluating capital stack for mostly these community solar, commercial, industrial, small utility scale projects your entire career. So you've got a wellspring of knowledge about the relative similarities and differences Among those three, I'll call it those three asset classes, CNI, community solar, and utility scale. As we continue to dig into our, and improve our understanding around this notion of kind of the foundations, the fundamentals of community solar, I thought it'd be interesting to have a conversation with you around the various pieces pertinent to someone who is trying to just wrap their head around community solar so that they can understand and internalize for their business the functional elements of financing community solar, how it's similar to and different from those other asset classes. From that perspective, side, can you talk to me about the revenue stream? What particularly is unique about community solar as a revenue stream at a, at a 30,000 foot level? And then let's get into the different areas that revenue is derived.
0: When you're comparing community solar revenue streams to the utility scale, as well as the commercial on-site PPAs, One critical thing is on either side, you're typically dealing with a single offtake. Whereas in community Solar, you're going to have a portfolio of offtakers. Also, number point two, typically with Utility Scale, you're looking for an investment-grade counterparty. Same thing with the CNI, on-site PPAs. With community Solar, that can be a part of the portfolio, but you may see some variety on credit risk and credit assessments of the offtakers that are part of that portfolio. Mm -hmm. Number three, typically with utility scale and on-site PPA, you're dealing with generally either corporates or utilities. Maybe sometimes you're dealing with governments. Those are what I consider to be the majority of the offtake pool. Whereas with community solar, you're really talking about residential customers mixed with some amount of corporate and other CNI. To me, those three things highlight the key differences between community solar and utility scale and on site.
1: Very well stated. So, as a recap, single party offtake versus multi party offtake comparison. And for those listening, the first comparison is sort of CNI and utility versus community solar. So, single party offtake in traditional format versus multi party offtake. Credit risk is different, not necessarily revenue grade in the community solar side, based on some of the things that we'll learn about the way the cash stack comes together. And then, third, Corporate, utility, government, offtake, aka more revenue grade, more bankable, larger portfolios for CNI versus residential heavy focus on, we'll call it the bulk, the majority of community solar. So let's talk about the three key areas that revenue is derived. Can you outline them for me and then we'll dig into each one?
0: So I'll start with the offtake agreement. In Community Solar, we use the nomenclature subscription agreement, but is the it's the direct equivalent to a power purchase agreement with a utility or a power purchase agreement with a corporate on-site. That's number one. Number two, we've got the REC. In certain policy-enabled marketplaces the developer can take title to the RECs and can sell that themselves into the open marketplace. And in number three, I would say it's incentives that are program specific. And those can come in the form of a one-time upfront block grant, or it could be part of some sort of adder or subtractor to a ongoing stream of payments.
1: We'll define some of these terms for you. Offtake is generally the person responsible for taking the power and therefore has that subscription to exchange cash or some other monetary value for the electrons. The REC sale is the Renewable Energy Credit, REC, and we will dig a little deeper into that in a second. And incentives, generally speaking, are the policies, to size point very early in the conversation, they're the policies structured by each generally government or municipal entity who wants to incentivize their local constituents to choose this form of electricity over some other alternative. Usually, it's mm-hmm. a utility or it's a local government. So, si, let's dig into the offtake agreement. I think that this is probably the most misunderstood element of financing of financing solar, and they generally are very simple conceptually, but they can become very complex in the different models. And certainly, community solar is not immune to the complexities.
0: <laughs> Definitely, when it comes to the offtake agreement, Nico, the thing that community solar that sets community solar apart for me. Starts with the fungibility of the offtake itself, meaning mm. who are we looking to to subscribe to the project and take title to the credits that are generated by community solar projects? Yeah. And mm. what's unique when I say the word fungibility, I mean I define that as the ability to swap different types of customers, be it residential or commercial, be it during the term of, of the agreement itself. And still maintain the expectations that the financiers have of recovering their investment because they will have somebody in that marketplace who is eligible to participate in the program yeah. paying for the bill credits that's being generated.
1: It's the equivalent, if I, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's the equivalent of effectively setting a solar a utility scale project up for merchant, right? The bank sees that there's a revenue strip and they assume that the, so there's going to take effectively a risk on the finance side based on their project developer or asset owner counterparty who is guaranteeing the subscriptions, right? They're effectively taking a backstop on those subscription assumptions. Correct. Okay. Who really owns these facilities then?
0: Yeah. So it's evolved over time, but as of today, I would say it's predominantly IPPs asset management firms, mm-hmm. and then also larger development firms. So the developers themselves will take title to some of the projects themselves.
1: Yeah, we see that a lot. Obviously, EDPR has got a big stake in community solar, I uh, had solar landscape on, and was super surprised that they're a regional player that owns a big portfolio of their own, right? That's right. And it's impressive to your point. I wouldn't have, I definitely did not assume when I started digging into this, that you'd see the number of developers who choose to own the asset, does it become complex if they want to bring in a larger player and they still, because you see this a lot in the utility side where the developer would love to have that annuity. They'd love to have that revenue strip Mm -hmm. and they are not going to be a counterparty or, or a carry along in the finance structure for most of these large utility projects. They just have to take their development fee and and sort of go about their way. Is
0: Mm -hmm. that different in any way in the
1: community solar projects that you've seen?
0: Yeah, I think it's more akin to the corporate on-site PPAs where they want to Mm -hmm. retain some amount of sponsor, or they provide sponsor equity and retain some amount of the uh, revenue strip going forward after the debt's been serviced and after the tax equity's been repaid. So yeah, I think there's a little bit of a difference there as it relates to community solar versus utility scale.
1: That's very cool. Well, you talk about the IPPs in there and they effectively are the owners. Is there any particular nuance around the owner revenue that stands out for
0: you? So I think one thing to think about carefully is the fact that Community Solar is structured to provide more stable and higher value bill credits because it actually is intended to provide a larger value for the residential consumers in the state, the small mom and pop commercial entities in the state. And so I call this proxy retail rates. They may not exactly tie to specific retail schedules or tariffs that are available in the marketplace today, but it's very close to that value. As opposed to being more like merchant wholesale rates, these values may be 2x what wholesale is currently seeing in the marketplace.
1: How does that impact the, the viability of projects when compared with what we might otherwise think of in, in Mark? Well, I, I could see how that would impact in particular commercial rooftop owners or CNI level community solar to become viable in some way because you are now able to increase the relative amount of income for the
0: counterparties. That's right. I think it, it increases viability two ways. I mean, from the offtake perspective, if you're a subscriber and you're getting 10 to 12 cents a kilowatt hour of bill credits for every kilowatt hour produced by Community Solar, that's really attractive to you because that's pretty close to what you're paying right now for your electricity. When it comes to the project owners, it's really attractive because you're getting a very high value. So every kilowatt hour that's being produced by this project is offering you some, some amount of income that is 2x what you could get in the wholesale marketplace today. And
1: yeah, or even in the corporate PPA market.
0: Or even in a corporate PPA market, exactly.
1: Yeah. Okay. So who are then the offtakers in the transaction? We talk about offtake. Typically, as you said, in a corporate agreement, it's like a Facebook or an Amazon or a Microsoft. Maybe you'd have one, even two, maybe three offtake in one large, huge utility scale project, which itself can get very complex. Mm-hmm. Community solar has this fungibility aspect to it. How does that help? redefine the nature of the off taker.
0: Yes. So in order to answer that question, Nico, let's first talk about how policy enabled community solar marketplaces typically are set up. They say, hey, look, this program is intended to help democratize solar and give access to people who may not otherwise have that access. So you got to understand that mm. the genesis of this. So let's not just let people who own property or own usable yeah. property get access to solar. Let's let tenants Get access to solar. Let's let entities that may not have properties that are suitable for solar get access to solar. The people that can offtake, or the entities that can offtake, are residential consumers, regardless of whether or not you're a apartment dweller or a homeowner. It's also commercial entities, and it doesn't necessarily have to be corporate. It could be smaller mom and pop retail stores, all the way up into Google. Theoretically, could yeah. also be a offtaker. So you've got the entire spectrum of customers that take retail electricity within a marketplace as potential subscribers.
1: One of the things that stands out for me then, given that if anything with policy is deeply rule driven, Mm -hmm. are there rules that dictate the diversity in the customer
0: mix? Yeah, there are, Nico. So every state's a little bit different, but generally speaking, the programs will say X percent of the project offtake needs to be mass market. Mass Mm -hmm. market is typically defined as Either someone who's taking power under a residential electric tariff or maybe defined based on the amount of demand that they use or consume on site. And that's typically the majority. So either 50, 60, 70%. Then the minority of the offtake will have to come, can be anchor customers. And so anchor customers are defined as everyone else. And typically, and we can get into this more, anchor customers are going to be the larger corporates, the ones that are investment grade that provides some more security for financiers in in that they're bigger publicly rated investment grade entities.
1: How does that impact the probability ratios and the weightings for the finance, right? The difference between whether a bank is going to allow you to use a P50, P90. Can you talk a bit about the relative impact, even though they are a minority of the anchor customers in the overall structuring of and success of one of these community solar funds?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, if you think about it, a lot of these financiers are coming from a place of having that single investment grade corporate offtake. And so, mm-hmm. retaining some amount of revenue stream that resembles what they're accustomed to helps in getting credit committees to get comfortable with this new asset class, especially marketplaces like Massachusetts or Minnesota. You know, 40 to 50% of the project can be dedicated towards someone like that. And when we look out at the marketplace, historically that's what people have done. That way it makes the conversation easier when you're trying to get financiers comfortable with the other 50% or the other 60% of the portfolio being a basket of residential consumers sprinkled with some smaller CNI. And historically when they looked at the residential thing, they looked at it kind of like mortgage brokers do. When they assess, they assess based on FICO scores, but there has been evolution over time. And now things there have gotten moved away from FICO and which makes sense because, you know, their ability to repay their electric bill is probably a better proxy for whether or not they can repay the subscription agreement that they're signing up for.
1: Yeah. You know, it's a great tool as well, as we've seen a conversation we had with Dana Claire Redden recently of solar. Stewards. The conversation we'll have next around REX, like it really does allow an asset class where underprivileged, marginalized communities can have access to, call it an asset class, but really like a new energy option that is sustainable and resilient. And community solar, for me, from my perspective, it looks a lot like a utility project to the bank right now where they have to decide how much of it is contracted revenues is what we say, right? You've got, a, you've got a 100 megawatt project, maybe you've got 50 or 60 megawatts of power contracted in the other you know, 40%. There's some balance that the bank wants to see as a minimum guaranteed contracted revenue flow. Are you seeing more flexibility on the one side, more flexibility with banks on how much is anchor? Obviously, like you said, there's rules around it, but I'm curious to know what sort of, what mechanisms are in place from the banking side of the finance structure, to ensure that they're comfortable with that contracted revenue, or the at least the appearance of contracted revenue?
0: Sure. yeah. so there's a lot of different mechanisms in place to help get financiers comfortable with it. I mean, I'd start by saying the financier itself is really important who you choose to work with, because some of them may have more experience with this. Some of them may be more comfortable with certain types of risks. I would also go on to say that there are lots of debt financiers, uh, debt providers, that have gotten. More comfortable with this type of asset over time. So these are all positive things. But here's one thing that they would think about. One is if you're thinking about a portfolio of fungible customers, then the question is how attractive is this program to those customers? Because if I lose a customer due to some amount of churn, like a residential homeowner decides to relocate to a different state, how quickly can I replace that person with another eligible residential subscriber? And so that ability to replace. Is somewhat correlates with the attractiveness of the program. In all cases, I would say Community Solar is very attractive because you're offering, the market has shifted towards offering fixed percentage discounts to the underlying bill credit, which is a long winded way of saying almost guaranteed savings. If you're a potential subscriber, why wouldn't you want to take guaranteed savings, Mm -hmm. right? So that means the attractiveness of the program is high, which makes the financiers more comfortable agreeing that, yeah, you should be able to find a replacement, but then show me how you will get a replacement. And so that's where this cottage industries of aggregators that have cropped up, names like an Ampion or an Arcadia, Perch, they are all entities dedicated toward customer acquisition, both resi and commercial and customer management. And the industry has gravitated toward outsourcing the developer, owner, operators, outsource, that aspect of the business operations to those aggregators. And they in turn provide assurance to the owner operators and their financiers that there will always be someone out there finding a replacement for customers should they leave. And so when you have those two things going on hand in hand, now you're feeling a lot more comfortable dealing with a basket of fungible customers that may change over time.
1: How does the fungibility of the customer that we've described here impact, thusly, the flexibility of the asset?
0: Yeah, wow. Okay, so I think the fungibility of the customer is core to what makes what sets Community Solar apart from your wholesale utility PPA and the on-site PPA. Not only does it drive how financiers need to think about the ability to swap customers in and out, It also then dictates or trickles down into the agreement terms and conditions as well. Let me give you some concrete examples. Nico, you know that when we're signing corporate DPPA, you're going to want to secure a longer term deal, as long a tender as you can get. Same thing with on-site PPAs. If you can get 20, 25 years, that's a gold standard for a term. With Community Solar, the way it has kind of evolved over time, people are moving to shorter and shorter terms. There are folks out there today that are offering no term you just sign up and it's kind of like a Netflix subscription. You sign up whenever you want and you can cancel whenever you want. There are no termination fees, no penalties. They're asking for just, you know, maybe 30 to 60 days advance rate notice. That's how far we've deviated from the norm from yesteryear in terms of terms and termination. And all of that has to do with the fungibility of the customer. Because if you had one single corporate offtake that you're depending on for your revenue streams, you got to make sure that there are Monetary penalties for in the event that they pull the ripcord and exit, right? Otherwise, how are you going to be made whole? Well, with community solar, if someone leaves, you just find someone else. As long as you feel rest, if you feel assured that you'll you will find someone else that you like, then you're okay with having them leave.
1: Yeah, I'll tell you what's going to be exciting. I am board member for a company that is operating in a completely separate international market in Brazil, and. They have certainly been a test bed for what's possible with not only virtual power plants, but community solar. And they did a fun promotional campaign for, I think, about six months or a year where one of the biggest football teams, soccer, basically promoted to all their customers. And they had this, you know, it's not unlike the insurance companies going in and having these big corporate campaigns. It was this, like it opens up our market to the ability for really creative new marketing concepts for how we Partner with entities that have access to our broader base of clients, right? Because now you're not looking for someone with a 720 FICO score and a homeowner. Mm -hmm. You're simply looking for someone who's a clean energy advocate and pays a utility bill, which is going to be a much larger percentage of our society. The other piece of the revenue that is intangible but not unimportant is this concept of the renewable energy credit. How do they work? And how is community solar perhaps a little different from? Traditional projects.
0: Sure. So for listeners who are not familiar, renewable energy credits are a attribute given to eligible, clean, or renewable generating assets. So electrons that are produced as measured in megawatt hours, you get to lay claim to the fact that it's renewable energy assets or renewable energy credit. Now every project in community solar is treated differently. And part of the reason why is because of the programs that themselves. So certain programs, in fact, the majority of programs were developed to help the state meet their renewable portfolio standards goal, RPS goal. And so what I mean by that is the community solar program was created to allow for the development and operation of renewable energy projects that will generate electricity and RECs that will then be dedicated to the utility who will retire it on the behalf of the state to meet their RPS goals. So a lot of these programs basically say the developer needs to give title to the RECs directly to the utility end of story. However, that's not all marketplaces. So there are specific markets like Maine for example that has the net energy billing program where title to the RECs can be retained by the developer. I think New Jersey is also similar. You can the developer can own the transitional renewable energy credits and sell that into the New Jersey marketplace. And those have real value. Maine RECs can be sold into the New England ISO marketplace or even directly into Massachusetts as a class 1 REC and New Jersey transitional RECs have tremendous value because it's driven by the state. And that is a big chunk of the revenue stream.
1: Are the RECs negotiable then from a developer perspective how? As a developer, do you want to think about Rex as an overall piece of the transaction and negotiation that you're having when you bring on a development partner?
0: Yeah. So when you're thinking about RECs in a marketplace like Maine, mm-hmm. you got to ask yourself, how am I going to monetize this? And you know, your first thought is going to be, oh, I'm going to go and find a REC broker, someone who's in the business and understands it. But what you'll then realize is that there's a mismatch in terms of the broker's ability or willingness to sell you a REC agreement where they buy a strip because they're only willing to go out a few years, maybe three, five years Mm -hmm. tops. No one is willing to sign up for a 25-year REC agreement where they, because it's just hard to place a value on something for that long. And
1: it's a spot market product, right?
0: Correct. That's right. Yeah. So the REC values are, the RECs are traded in an open marketplace. So the value of the RECs fluctuate with time and- it's, you know. so, it's, it's, so like, you, it's
1: like a commodity. You wouldn't trade. We don't have rec futures mm-hmm. yet.
0: <laughs> That's true, but we may. But yes, it is a, effectively a commodity. Yeah. And what's critical to remember is that these programs are set up to run for 20, 25 years to match the asset life right. of solar, which is 20, to 25 years or even longer. And so if you're looking to finance these projects... And recs are an important part of that, but you can only get a rec broker to give you a three to five year strip. What are you going to do with years six through 25? Yeah. You How are you going to monetize broker. that value? <laughs> exactly. You've got to be willing to take on a little bit of risk or alternatively, there are certain firms out there that will have their own internal curves, rec curves, mm-hmm. and are willing to take on some of that risk and give you value today in the form of like a higher debt fee, for example.
1: Yes. There you go. You know, I think it's really this is one of those areas where if you're a developer and you don't know what you're getting into, you'll get burned. You will get hosed by a savvy finance partner who recognizes your naivety. So get educated on how Rex work in the market that you want to operate in. And that brings us to point number 3. Markets that you want to operate in oftentimes are dictated not just by where you physically are based, but by where you have identified incentives and how you want to work with them. So let's talk about this third and final piece. How relevant Is the incentive program for these projects relative to your traditional utility development portfolio?
0: Yeah. So traditional utility portfolios don't really have access to state level incentives. Typically, they have everyone gets access to federal level tax incentives. Okay. That's full stop. But Mm -hmm. at the state level, community solar projects do oftentimes benefit from cash incentives from the state. Here's some examples in New York, they had the New York Sun program. Uh, if you apply and are deemed eligible, you may be receiving a cash, one-time cash grant that goes towards offsetting some of your capital that you spend on developing the project. Illinois has an adjustable block program. In fact, Illinois has just recently revised their ABP program. So they've got a set of incentives there in the form of a 15-year guaranteed rec strip with the IPA. And then in Massachusetts, they have a very complex incentive structure where the amount of every kilowatt hour produced is given some amount of incentive on a kilowatt hour basis, but that is dictated based on what type of project, what technology is employed, what type of land it's being built up, even what type of mounting system you're using and who the offtake is. And part of that, you might be thinking, wow, that's really complex. Why are they doing that? It's partially because they want to drive developer behavior in a specific direction. So let me give you a really good example, Nico. So in Massachusetts, they want to discourage greenfield development, and they want to encourage brownfield development. Mm. Taking previously disturbed land and building solar on it makes a lot of sense. But a lot of developers consider that to be harder and more complex, so they may not want to do that. So what Massachusetts is doing under the SMART program is incentivizing developers by offering them more money. If they build on a brownfield simultaneously, that's the carrot. So simultaneously, the stick is if you build on greenfield, sure, fine, go ahead. But we're going to actually have a subtractor as opposed to an adder on the incentives that you receive. So, you know, they're modeling developer behavior by providing monetary incentives in the form of a carrot and a stick.
1: Very, very interesting. I can see how, and that's a great example of Massachusetts, the complexity with different incentives. Based on various inputs, configurations, offtake mix, etc, how you incorporate the different components, it's elegant the way Massachusetts, in particular, has chosen to direct it's almost like opportunity zones, right? They use it as a way to say, "We want you over here." Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know if this is an easy question or not, but maybe you could help break down for me the relative importance of how incentives contribute to the overall cash flow.
0: In some ways, it's fairly straightforward because you can actually see the absolute dollars that would be coming in to the project, and that's dictated based on the the rules of the incentives. A lot of the incentives are declining over time, Mm -hmm. so first movers do get an advantage in that they will be able to lay claim to a higher amount of incentives on a dollar per watt basis or dollar per kilowatt hour basis. As a percentage of the overall revenue stream, I would say it could be as little as single digit percentages, Mm. and could be as much as 20 to 25%, depending Mm. on which marketplace you're in.
1: Mm -hmm. Wow. So what if you, as a developer, want to be in multiple jurisdictions?
0: Yeah. So again, if you're a developer that's operating in multiple states, that means you need to have an understanding of multiple programs. And you also need to find a partner who also understands each of those programs. That's not easy to do. And I can tell you personally that trying to stay on top of Even one marketplace is very difficult because it's dynamic. It's constantly changing. Then staying on top of seven, maybe a dozen different programs is really challenging. And there are only a handful of partners out there, the financiers that are really dedicated to understanding all of the different marketplaces. So I would say it is very critical, Nico, to find a partner that is in it, in community solar, in a deep way so that they have that knowledge base and understanding of all the relevant program rules and requirements to be able to support you and to be able to offer developers better and more fair valuations.
1: Yeah, there really aren't the way that you had structured NRG and obviously Clearway is moving more towards this pure play utility model. There really aren't a lot of nationwide shops that can support developers if they want to be more than a single, a single market player. Right. If they want to Mm -hmm. have a a more comprehensive structure, you're right. It's count on one hand the companies that could support that kind of a developer and that kind of growth. So that question is for me. As a, if I'm thinking of this from a development perspective, I'm thinking about how do I prepare budget, how do I prepare my team, how do I know how big I can go and how fast. What is the most common constraint you see that really holds developers back from being able to go after the community solar market?
0: Yeah. So Nico, we talked about this earlier, but I think it's tied back to the policies and the incentives associated with community solar. So you need not only a partner knowledgeable about every marketplace, but you also need someone who is comfortable with providing tax equity capital mm-hmm. in every marketplace. We, You and I both know tax equity is a tough, it's a scarce commodity mm-hmm. out there. And securing it for community solar is no different than securing it for utility scale in that you're competing to get the best possible partners. The federal tax incentive landscape is standardized. So these community solar projects do qualify for the same set of federal depreciation benefits as well as federal Tax credits, but the tax equity provider needs to be comfortable with the program rules itself Mm -hmm. as well, just like the debt providers. And ironically, there are a larger pool of debt providers that are willing to provide capital debt to Community Solar relative to tax equity because debt providers are actually comfortable with the idea of loaning to a basket of fungible customers. Mm. There's a lot of mortgages out there in the marketplace, and that's a good analogy for them. Whereas with tax equity, it's sort of a unique and a niche product and has been traditionally, at least in the renewable landscape, dedicated to these large wind and solar off projects that have these investment grade corporate offtakes. And so for them to get comfortable with an asset that has a basket of fungible offtakers is new and novel. Mm-hmm. You know, what I've seen is if you're going to hit a bit of a hitch, it probably as a developer or a development shop, that's going to be where you're going to have maybe a little bit more of a challenge in securing that line of capital, just based on my personal experience.
1: My final question on that would be, is it as competitive for tax equity in the community solar? And in particular, is there anything more or less attractive to tax equity providers with regard to community solar than perhaps other infrastructure options that they have to think about? Right? Because a lot of folks think about tax equity is hard to get. Well, it's because tax equity has a lot of things coming after it and saying, I can entice you with this or that benefit. How does it stack up for community solar developers with regards to the relative attractiveness of community solar for tax equity providers?
0: Yeah. So I think ultimately, the way I think about it is tax equity, you have to put your tax equity provider hat on. What is their motivation, their incentives? They have to go out to their own investment committees the year before, create a fund and secure a certain amount of capital to deploy in the next year. And so what they want to do is build their credibility internally with their own team by being able to efficiently deploy that tax equity capital and earn the returns, the risk adjusted returns that they're setting out to do. What you need to be able to offer them as a development shop is a pathway towards having a large enough portfolio of community solar projects to make it worth their while. So scale, because you will be competing against utility scale opportunities as well. Right, And two, you need to give them assurance that these projects will actually get built and be operational on the timeline that you said it would. Third thing is you got to make them comfortable with the fact that these projects are real projects and they're not in any way more risk, more risky compared to their utility scale cousins. And I think we've talked a lot earlier, Nico, about all those different things that make it clear that community solar is in some ways even superior to mm-hmm. utility scale from a investor perspective. Yeah. And so hopefully that, yeah, I, I think those are my thoughts.
1: Si, it seems to me, based on what we talked about a little earlier, where essentially you've got a premium on the kilowatt hour compared to similar projects, utility scale, CNI. And that thus, if we think about it from, you mentioned debt really likes this, Uh, If you think about it from a debt service coverage ratio perspective, all investors, including tax equity, are going to look at this as a more, they should look at it as a better risk-adjusted return because there's just more cash in the pot to cover potential losses.
0: Yep, that's right. I think me, solar pound for pound offers much more revenue per kilowatt hour than corporate offtake, PPAs, and as well as onsite.
1: Well, I literally couldn't have said it better myself, Cy, and I am truly grateful. As I know, our Suncast tribe is as well for this veritable clinic on the income streams and the revenue stack that represents how community solar is both developed and financed. I want to thank you for an opportunity to peer behind the veil with you. Thank you for being so transparent, open, and helpful. If folks were so inclined, and I'm sure more than one will be, how could you be found? Where do you like to hang out on the interwebs?
0: Yeah. So I think the best way to reach me would be email cy.kim at community solar support.com.
1: Are you on LinkedIn? Is that a thing? Or
0: Oh, I'm also on LinkedIn. Yes. Sai Kim.
1: All right. Fantastic. We will link to your LinkedIn. And of course, those overly proactive folk will have heard your email and reach out to you directly. I encourage you to do so. Cy has demonstrated track record of supporting community solar development as the name implies so just a tremendous value to our community and i really just want to thank you once more for joining us here on suncast
0: thank you the privilege is mine
1: i hope you've enjoyed today's episode in this five-part series exploring how community solar works from the perspective of policy technical expertise financial analysis and commercial opportunity many thanks to the expert contributors sharing their insights to this series and to our partner edp renewables north america who helped make it possible I hope you'll subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, and check us out on the web at mysuncast.com forward slash community solar, that's all one word, where you can read more about each guest, find additional background information on each episode, and dig into the references from each discussion. If you're completely unfamiliar with me and this is your first time listening to Suncast, well, I've interviewed more than 400 founders, leaders, entrepreneurs, and entrepreneurs in the clean energy industry over the last six years through the Suncast podcast, all in an effort to help you figure out exactly where you fit in this clean energy transition. If you haven't yet, I'd encourage you to give Suncast a listen. It's the most comprehensive podcast in existence, documenting the rise of the solar and clean energy revolution from the voices of the leaders brave enough to stand on the front lines. We hope you've enjoyed this, the fifth and final episode in this five-part series exploring how community solar works from the perspective of policy technical expertise commercial opportunity and as you've just heard financial analysis how the revenue stacks up many thanks to our expert contributors who shared their insights throughout this series and to our partner edp renewables north america who helped make it possible i do hope that you'll subscribe to the suncast podcast wherever you get your podcasts and check us out on the web you can get more about this series at mysuncast.com forward slash community solar where you can read more about each guest learn more about ep renewables north america find additional background information on each episode and dig into the references that we've uncovered in our research it is our joy to bring you these 101 level introductory series and we hope that if you have enjoyed this series you would consider subscribing to the suncast podcast, at least give it a listen. We've got more than 400 founders, leaders, entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs stories covering the clean energy industry evolution and revolution over the last six plus years. We're nearing our 500th episode and I'm so honored that you've given us the only non-renewable resource that you've gotten. That's your time. If this series has inspired you and you'd like to either Share that knowledge with others or with us, or you'd love to see us bring more episodes just like this. I'd encourage you to reach out on LinkedIn. You can find everything you need on the website. You'll hear that URL in just a moment. Please connect with me on LinkedIn. My name is Nico Johnson, and I look forward to hearing from you and let us know, should we be doing more deep dives on community solar? Is there a 201? Is this a whole separate podcast? I look forward to hearing from you soon. This Community Solar series is a production of Suncast Media, and this season one, again, is brought to you by EDP Renewables North America. Let them be your partner and bring your next Community Solar project to completion. You can find out how and get a whole lot more resources by going to mysuncast.com forward slash community solar. Remember, you are what you listen to. So thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.